This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to this special episode of Women at Work. I'm Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I'm thrilled to bring you another installment in our series, Reframe Voices of Change. We're celebrating the bravery, creativity, and wisdom of the game-changing women in the entertainment industry. This is my conversation with Amy Adrian, whose documentary, Half the Picture, reveals the systemic barriers faced by women filmmakers and how those amazing women consistently rise above them every day. So when I saw Half the Picture, your documentary, um, it struck me that you were giving us the story of the storytellers, and in particular, these systemic biases and barriers that women directors are facing every day and have for a long time in getting their pictures made. What prompted you to tell this story now? Um, I am a woman director myself. Um, I went to film school at UCLA. Um, I graduated, I had a couple of kids, and I had some film projects that I was really trying to get made, trying to get financed. Um, And I was having a really hard time of it. And right around that time, in 2015, Um, I just kind of felt like I was being assaulted by the headlines of just how bad it was for women directors, like Variety, New York Times, LA Times. It was just like, you know, every statistic, every bit of research that's done by these great organizations, inclusionists at USC and Dr. Martha Lawson's study at San Diego State. um, It was just terrible. Like the landscape looked terrible and it looked like an impossible path. Um, And so as someone who had gone to film school to be a director and and graduate school. Um, I was wondering for myself, am I, am I trying to do something that's impossible? So I wanted to talk to women who were making films, who I admired, whose films I love, um, to see how those women had broken through, like how, how have they managed to, to get through this system? And, and right at that time also was when the ACLU had taken on this issue of women directors, Um, the EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, then took on an investigation. And after many years of women directors kind of talking about this amongst ourselves, it seemed like, okay, these these formidable forces have joined with us, so maybe now something's going to be different. So I really wanted to document, you know, what was going to happen. It was anything going to change. When you started doing the interviews, it seems like you were searching both for instruction and inspiration, but you were also uncovering their realities. What surprised you the most that you heard from them? Was there any pattern that emerged from you, for you? Yes. The pattern that I was surprised about, and I think that was the most um, kind of rose above everything else, was just how hard the road has been for these women. And again, I'll say I am a huge fan whether it's Gina Prince-Bythewood or Jill Soloway or Catherine Hardwick or Ava DuVernay or Mary Heron, Kim Pierce, Karin Kusama, all these women have made such amazing films. Like I have grown up loving their films and you think, well, they're so good at what they do. They're such good writers. They're such good directors. You know, I know I'm having trouble in the business, but I'm not them. So they can't possibly have had the same challenges that I've had because they're just, they're just so talented. They're too good. They're too good. Yeah. Right. 
Um, and their work is in the world. We've all seen it. We've, they've proven how good they are, but they still have had and continue to have such a fight, you know, whether, whether it be to get their first episode of television directing, which is crazy. You know, Karin Kusama made Girl Fight and Ian Flux and Jennifer's Body, all these, you know, big studio films. And no one would hire her to direct an episode of television because she hadn't directed an episode of television. I mean, it's completely insane. So I think just hearing from them, all of the challenges that they face, I was kind of both discouraged and that you're like, oh my God, they've, they have it. They have it. They have, they have what it takes. You think they have everything yeah, it takes. Like they, it shouldn't be so hard for them, but it, so that was discouraging. But at the same time, it was encouraging because you go, okay, even they had to go through this. Like I can do it. You can do it. Like we can, if we have the hustle, if we have the talent, we can get there. Um, because all of us have to go through that. It's really, really hard. I mean, this is a hard business for everybody, but there are particular challenges for women. That issue of what these super successful directors were facing after big successes was probably the biggest surprise for me. So much of how you had the story unfold mirrored what we talk about in the business world, made visible why the need for everything, the whole talent pipeline. How do you cultivate young talent, develop it, mentor it, sponsor it, support it, get it funding, mm -hmm. and then help it rise into leadership positions is an ongoing challenge in the corporate world. You opened my eyes to see this is a real problem in Hollywood and the whole entertainment industry as well. And that these superbly accomplished women, it's like the women who can't make it to the C-suite. Right. Because they haven't been in the C-suite. But men who haven't been in the C-suite get to the C-suite. Right. So what's happening that's different for the men who are getting that first episode of television, right. who are breaking through that next barrier to much bigger success and influence? Right. What are they getting? And I mean, I think that obviously we live in a culture that has a bias against being able to, difficulty in seeing women as leaders, difficulty in seeing women as artists. Like that's a very new phenomenon. Um, you know, this idea of male genius has been around forever and ever and ever. And it's Picasso and it's, you know, Polanski and it's Paul Thomas Anderson. And it's, you know, there's just a long history of young guys who kind of spring out, who are wild and creative. And we all know that we recognize it. We understand it. There really is no female counterpart to that. And we, you know, just don't have a framework for understanding really explosive female talent. We don't. Um, and I think that's something that we need to build culturally, but there is a huge bias against seeing women as leaders and artists. So it's just harder to take those leaps of faith on those women. Whereas for men, they can have one good little film and then people trust them to, you know, make a big, huge Hollywood blockbuster. And that almost never happens for women. How did that doubt? that lack of trust in your ability because of gender present itself to you? Was it overt, obvious, or was it insidious? Well, that's, I, I think, one of the most interesting parts of the film we made, Half the Picture. Various of the women we interviewed talk about that, and women who are really successful. So Nisha Ganatra, who recently made the film Late Night, um, Jill Soloway, they talk about how year after year, when you get passed over, when you don't get hired, when you don't get the job, you do begin to think, well, I'm, I'm not as good as that guy, or I'm not as talented, or the stories I want to tell are not as important, 
or not as universal. I mean, how can you not start to internalize that? Of course. Um, Jill Soloway brilliantly calls it the uninvited guest who's, guest who's always in your head telling you, like, why are you going there? It's too much. It's too weird. No one wants to hear it. So we all have that internalized. And even women at the highest levels of the business are fighting that. One of the things that struck me, though, is that all of the women in the documentary found a way to rise above it, to recognize, and this is a challenge women face across every industry. It's how do we, if we're getting two pieces of information, if we're getting information and we can make sense of it in two different ways. One is, it's me. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I need to listen to them. They're stronger, louder, dominant. More experienced. Yeah. Um, or, wait a second, I know I'm good. And I'm hearing this from men. And it's about my rising into a leadership role. It's about my having a voice. And I'm going to trust that I'm good. How did you learn to hear that and not the former? And how did the women that you talked to learn to override that habitual voice? Well, I mean, I took so much inspiration from the women we interviewed. I mean, even as I was making this film, which was a challenge to make, it was a challenge to finance, I would literally call back to interviews with Jill Soloway or Lena Dunham, and they said in the interviews, I mean, Lena Dunham said, you know, I've always had a bit of delusional self-confidence, and maybe it's just self-protection, because she would write something and some guy would say like, oh, it's not good or it's weird. And she would say, no, this is important and it's good. And he's just an idiot. And like, <laughs> not that you, not that you want to take that into your life, but some part of that you do have to take into your life. I mean, there's, they say it in a bit of a profane way in the film, but you kind of have to, you know, build yourself up to know that Ava DuVernay talks about it also in the film. Sometimes it's just not for them. If, you don't, if someone doesn't like something, they just don't connect to it. It's just not for them. It right. doesn't mean it's not good. It doesn't mean it's not important. Um, so I think it was really helpful for me to listen to all these women who sometimes, you know, had to just take on a cloak of like, I'm going to pretend a little bit. I'm going to pretend I'm shameless. I'm going to pretend I'm going to take on the white male, you know, confidence and privilege. And I'm just going to use that to get me through. Um but yeah, I mean, I, I marvel at the women in the film and they have all had to do that. They've all had to fight those voices in their head, um, but they've done it. How do directors start to go out and find funding? Who are you, where does the money come from? Right, and especially when you're starting as a director, you, I mean, you are just kind of like, you know, scratching around to, to try to raise money wherever you can. And there's a few different ways you can, you can raise money. Um, there's equity financing, so you can talk to basically rich people you know, like okay. people who might have money to invest in a film. So individual investors. Individual in investors. You know, film is not a very secure investment. So usually it's people who want to do it because they want to support you and your vision and your film. You know, they'd like to go to Sundance if the film is one in a million and gets to come to this beautiful festival. Um, you know, those kinds of things. But a, often in independent films, those investors don't make their money back. And so you have to know people who can kind of have a little fun money to play with. In um, entrepreneurship, um, one of the rules is you won't get funding from, say, a VC until you have skin in the game and you have friends and family skin in the mm -hmm. game. Is that a parallel in Hollywood? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, I mean, you know, frankly, with our film, we started making the film by funding it on credit cards. I mean, first... <laughs> 
first off, which is like, don't do it. Don't, do not do it. Like, you know, it's just like, we're still paying those bills. Um, I mean, we sold the film, the film did really well, but all the time it's, you know, the money's on credit cards, you're paying that interest and it sucks. So, so it got more expensive as you exactly. shopped it around. Exactly. Um, but that's how we started making the film because Bottom line is, if you're not a filmmaker who has a lot of credits or in the business world, if you're not someone who has a name, who has some, you know, uh, you know, successes already, no one is going to give you money. So you need to figure out whether it's friends and family who can throw in some money. Um, we bought the gear we needed. We bought our cameras, um, our kit on credit cards. We initially brought in crew who we kind of paid back with equipment exchanges. So I would say to my camera people, you know, if you work a day on this, you can have my camera. So you bartered. Yeah. And I would say, you know, charge the commercial company for this equipment that you're bringing and get money from them and we'll prep the camera and we'll get it to you exactly as you need it. And however many days you work, we'll give you the equipment. So we did that for the first while of making the films. We just had no money. We had no money. It was credit cards for, you know, craft service and stuff like that. Um, but eventually once we shot a bunch of the film and you can actually show someone something, I mean, that's the thing. Investors, right. people How do you need make to it see, real? right. They need to, what are you talking about? A million people have a million ideas for, for films. You need something to show them. So after we shot a ton of interviews, we found an equity investor who gave us a big chunk of money, um, to help get through the post-production process, editing, color, sound, composer, all of that is, was a big chunk of our budget. Um, so we, but we financed our film through credit cards, boo, equity <laughs> financing, yay. Um, creative bartering. Yeah, creative <laughs> bartering. Um, and also we did a crowdfunding campaign through Seed and Spark, which is a woman-owned great um, crowdfunding um, service. And so that's an instance of where you just use that crowdfunding campaign as an excuse to tell every single person you've ever met in your entire life, hey, I'm making this movie. This is what it is. Here's a trailer for it. If you can give me 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, you can get a poster or a <laughs> shout out on social media or whatever. So we raised a good chunk of money doing that. And that was actually really helpful for me and for the film to build our audience. Also, that's a good, it's an excuse to tell people while you're making the film, here's what I'm doing. Support, sign up for our email list. So it sounds so, like a critical skill uh, that any filmmaker needs is the ability is to understand how to and to start early with networking. Yeah. And building a community that whether they are your audience or your funders. Absolutely. I mean, audience building is huge. Um, and I should say one other thing with, with uh, financing, particularly for documentaries, are grants. So we got a grant from Women in Film Los Angeles and Stella Artois, which was at the tail end of our post-production process that really helped us finish the film for Sundance. And we got into Sundance and we were like, holy crap, we need to finish this film really fast. And that costs money. So we right. were in, you know, kind of a tough position. But grants, again, like often you don't get grants until you have some kind of right. pedigree. So, um, yeah. Because no matter how well-intentioned the grant makers or the funders are, they need evidence that the money is going to be put to good use That's and right. responsibly handled. Of course. So I want to step back to a segment of the film that um, you were talking with these women, many of whom were mothers. You're a mother. You were a mother before you made your film. And it was both uh, inspiring and a little frightening for me to hear the story of one of the directors who she was pregnant and she got a call for a job 
And she's like, I'm due in two weeks. I will be there in three weeks. Three weeks after I had a baby, I was going nowhere. I was like proud that I walked around the block yeah. and she was showing up and directing a film. Yeah. Talk to me about how that story affected you and how much of that is her personal fortitude and how much of that is if you want to work, you don't have a choice. Right. Yeah. So that filmmaker is Jamie Babbitt, who's an incredible filmmaker who made the film, but I'm a cheerleader. She works on a ton of TV now. She is amazing. Um, <clears throat> well, it was really important for me to include that section in the film about motherhood and about family because I am a mother and that is a challenge in the business. And I think for a long time, women were reluctant to even say that because so much of women's lack of advancement in the business was put on, oh, women are mothers and they just self-select out of the business. Right. So that was kind of used as an excuse for why they weren't getting more jobs. And women are having kids and figuring it out all the time and they want to keep working. So, you know, women have been hesitant to talk about it, but it is a real challenge. But that section of the film, it was really important for me to include a wide variety of experiences. So you have a director, Lucy Walker, who's an incredible doc director who said, you know, very candidly, and I would say I'm so grateful to all the women in the film, particularly in that section, who were very candid and very open about their experiences in a business that is often, it's tough to be vulnerable in that way in this business because yes. you have to have a, you know, present yourself in a certain polished Teflon kind of way. And, the and women you're also in the presenting film, to people that put images out in the world for everybody right. else to see and that gets connected to you. It's like, right. it, it triples the pressure. Right. And they were very honest and very open. And I am so grateful to each of them for that. Um, but Lucy Walker in the film says, you know, candidly that she wasn't able to have kids and she thinks of it in some way, you know, she says in the film, she doesn't know if she'd be able to have the career that she has now and be all in if she were a parent, because it is so hard. So we had people in the film who don't have kids, who have been able to focus you know, perhaps more on their career and, you know, women who like Jamie Babbitt, who had a baby and was on set the next week and other women like Miranda July, um, who was very emotional in the film. She, when we interviewed her, her son was about three years old, still a very, still very young. She's married to a director, Mike Mills, and he was just off making his latest film, 20th century women. And she says in the film, I, you know, he, you know, he was gone a lot and he just didn't see our son for months at a time making a film. The hours are crazy. And she was like, I can't picture myself making my next film. I can't even imagine it because I can't imagine being away from my son for the time that it takes to make a movie. All that said, Miranda July is here at Sundance <laughs> 2020 with her new film because you do, you know, step by step you do it. And each woman just has to make that decision of what works for them on their own. Some women can be there with a newborn pumping, like, you know, behind the monitor. And <laughs> right. like, I know stories of women who've done that. And other women are like, I could never do that. I just, that doesn't work for me. So they wait a little bit and kids get a little bit older and you know, you, you build your community, it's nanny, it's grandma, it's, you know, supportive partner. So I think there's all different ways women can make it work. And I would just say about the Jamie Babbitt story, that was her second film and she had been trying to get financing like for ages. And it's like, it wasn't just like a job, it was like her second feature film and she had been waiting and waiting and waiting. Mm -hmm. And so when that comes through, you, you, do, you know. Right, you, you don't you want take to say it. no. Is there anything systematic, systemic, 
that could be done to make it easier? Is, um, do you think it's always gonna be the nature of this kind of entrepreneurial gig environment that when money comes, you have to jump at it? Or that the industry could get to a place where there could be a recognition that this talented person who's gonna make this great film is gonna start six weeks later because she just had a baby and that's how it should be unless she says she wants it to be different. Do you ever see that happening? Yeah, I mean, I think this is such a crazy business and so many things, particularly with film, just come together in their own weird, you know, each film is a snowflake. It's like, how the hell did the <laughs> money and the timing and the talent and the director. So it's hard to like, um, you know, make that systematic in some way, but there are a lot of things that the industry could do that would make life easier for working parents. Um, the DGA has their new, or, or there are women directors who are fighting to lobby the DGA to change their rules that in the DGA, you have to have worked a certain number of days over the course of a year to keep your health insurance. And so when women have children and they're not working as much, they can be penalized and lose their health insurance just at the time when they really need it. And so, um, wait a second. So I, I gotta make sure I'm capturing this. So the DGA, I would think is an organization that protects and advocates for its members. Yes. Does it by providing health insurance. However, it doesn't have a system yet to acknowledge that kind of like professional athletes that you're out taking care of your children and that's called maternity leave. Exactly. So there's, and, and, and I am not a member of the director's guild. Um, so I can't speak to the very, to the details of this, but I signed the pledge as, an, as, as someone <laughs> who thinks it's a great idea, but I, I forget if it's either, I think at every 12 months or it might be 18 months, it's like, you have to work a certain number of days as in a lot of these like union, right. when you're members of a union, you have to put your days, your hours in to be eligible for healthcare. Um, so yeah, exactly. That kind because, of like, rule doesn't just doesn't take into consideration the experience of women when you when you have a child and you need to be out of work for a little bit. And obviously you don't want to lose your health insurance at that at that time. So there's a petition that's going on now. And I think that's great because, you know, this is a business for mothers and fathers that needs to recognize that they're working parents in this business. And that benefits everyone if people can keep their health insurance. Um you know, there are other things like working French hours when you don't work a 12-hour day. Usually, what's, a, what are, what's working French hours? Usually in the U.S., um, a film shoot will have a 12-hour day. So 8 a.m. call, 8 p.m. wrap. You have an hour for lunch. If you're the director, if you're many other positions, you get there long before the 8 a.m. call and you stay after. So you wind up working very often, 14-hour days, 15-hour days. You never see anyone in your family, and that's just <laughs> right. like this intense period of your life. And I think for a long time, people just said, well, that's filmmaking, and that's just, them's the rules, that's how it works. But there are some productions, I think Marvel is one of the productions, actually, um, who work French hours. So you, you work a 10-hour day, and you kind of have a working lunch, so you don't all break for lunch for an hour. So you have a shorter day. And I remember I ran into the cinematographer, Rachel Morrison, who is the first woman to be nominated for an Academy Award for Cinematography for Black Panther. She's incredible. She has two young kids. And she said that the French hours kind of saved her because she could see her kid in the beginning of the day and in the end of the day. Um, so I think there are very specific kinds of shifts that can be made in the business that support certainly women, but also all working parents. That was film director Amy Adrian and our conversation at the Sundance Film Festival. 
Women at Work and the Wharton School collaborated on this series with Reframe, a partnership with the Sundance Institute and WIF Los Angeles. Credit goes to my fellow producers, Allison Emilio, Patty Hall, Valerie Locascio, our interns, Sage Holt and Abby Nelson, and our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, with special thanks to Angela Bostic, Scott Douglas, and Cade Massey for their ongoing support. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.